Thank you, Juan. I, li I like that. You can clap for that. I like that type of worship. I like it when the worship leader is so worshiping that he can't stop singing. That's what I'm talking about. We sang like the end of three different songs. That's the kind of worship I like. Worship leaders like man, I, I, I need I need a, I need a little bit more time. Well, this is our church and our building. We take as much time as we want. As a matter of fact, want sing us about seven, eight more songs before we. <laughs> we ain't singing no Justin Bieber here today. No One Direction. However, there is One Direction in it. You know how some people do that, right? Y'all don't want that for me this morning. We are, we are in a series. We are in a series that's talking about love. I, in hindsight, I should have named this series, What's Love Got to Do With It? As an older teen attorney. Not really, but the concept is real. What's love got to do with it? What's love got to do with Christianity? What's love have to do with the way I interact online? What's love have to do with every tweet, every Facebook post? What's love have to do with every comment? What's love have to do with every interaction? As we heard last week that love, biblical love is a command. And when God commands things, they must become a conviction. They're not optional. Last week we looked at what is love? Today, we're going to look at why, why love. Now, initially, I was going to do something different at the beginning of this sermon. But as I got into the passage, 1 John 4, that we're going to get in today, I felt like the Lord wanted us to just camp out here today. So the narrative that I'm going to share, I'm going to push back to next week, which was connected to why we're even reading the book that we're reading as a church. Because I think the Lord wants us here today. There's a lot to be said here in 1 John chapter 4. Now, this particular passage for me personally, it, it, I resonate with it because this passage was the very first message, the very first passage I preached in this church 12 years ago, this passage. But I didn't preach it for that reason. We're not looking at it today because I'm, I'm remembering what it was like 12 years ago. That's not what this is. This isn't going down memory lane. This is renewing a covenant that we've made with God and that God has made with us. Now, and we're going to look at verses 7 through 21. And we're going to break it up into four sections. And in those four sections, we're going to learn three reasons why we love, biblically speaking. So let's pray. Father, you chose John to be one of the original 12 apostles, one of the 12 disciples. And at some point, as we believe towards the end of his life, his life here on earth, 
you instructed him by your spirit to write this letter and to write this letter to those believers who were being tempted by a, 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 a fake Christianity that dealt more with Gnosticism, this mystic Christianity and visions, special visions from you and not just the word of God. And so you had your apostle write down what it means to genuinely be a believer. Pushing back against these fake notions of some special revelation. No, the special revelation already come in Jesus. And one of the three characteristics that you give for genuine conversion in this book is our focus today. These are your words, Lord, not mine. But I believe you've given me some understanding of these words that I hope will take effect in the hearts of each of us. May this not be one of those areas that we that we set aside as something we'd love to do but just really can't. May this not be one of those areas that are Social media distractions, our distractions of the day, our ADHD, our whatever we have, whatever things that distract us. For those at home who are watching at home, it's easy to be distracted at home. Lord, I pray that the message would not be background music, background noise as they do other things, as they clean up, as they play with their kids. This isn't a background noise. I pray that in this room, this would not be something that, yeah, I agree with. Great message. However, there is no great message. There's only a great God who expects real application. So, Lord, I'm nothing. I can't, it doesn't matter what gifts you've given me or how clever I sound. You have to impress this truth upon the hearts of those who belong to you that are listening in person and at home. I pray that what is said this morning would be true and would glorify you and would be applied as proof that it were true. Preach a better sermon to their ears than I can with my mouth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. First John chapter 4, our primary focus will be verses 7 through 21, but just because verses 1 through 6 are there, I want to say something briefly about verses 1, 1 through 6 because it seems like if you were to read this through, it seems like 1 through 6 is, says something different than the rest of 7 through 21, but I want to make one point about what he says in verses 1 through 6 in order for us to process what's said in verses 7 through 21. Reading from the CSB translation, beginning in verse 1, I quote, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see if they are from God, because many, are false, many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. 
This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, even now is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and you have conquered them. Because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, what they say is from the world. And the world listens to them. We are from God. Anyone who knows God listens to us. Anyone who is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of deception. There's no mention of love in this passage. So what's the connection? What's the connection to love in this passage? Well, what he's saying is the message of love is, is, is a part of God's message to humanity. And so there's many different definitions and many messages on love, but the only one that matters is the one that comes from God. And the way you know that it's from God is if it connects to God. You see, if God is love, which we'll read in just a moment, then the message of love has to be defined and applied in light of what God teaches. Any other message is not the spirit of truth. So he's saying you've got to test the spirits. Pay attention to what you hear. All love doesn't glorify God. He's making sure that you understand that the spirit of truth, those who confess that what Christ has done, the truth of what God says, the truth of what John is saying, is of Christ. But those who do not are of the devil. There's no gray area here from God's perspective. So in the context of love, it's love if it's defined by something other than God, then people who don't know God won't listen to it. If it's defined by God, then people who know God should obey it. And this is our challenge this morning. Four components in these 14 verses. Three reasons will come out of why we love God. The first component we're given in, in chapter in verse seven is the reminder. Here's the reminder. Here's what John says on behalf of God. Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Immediately, immediately, in verse 7, we get the first main reason why we love. Why are Christians commanded to be loving. As we'll read later on, why is the fact that genuine conversion from a Christian is seen in love? You might be off in your doctrine a little bit. Might be off on a couple of things, but if you're off in love, then the scriptures say you might be off in eternity. 
We get the first reason why we're commanded to be loving. But before I say what it is, let's recalibrate. Isn't that what Mike said, recalibration? <laughs> oh, to Pastor Mike on sabbatical, eating breakfast in bed right now listening to the sermon. Like half of the church. Got him. He says, let's love one another. What is love? It's a posture of the heart that loves others, in particular, believers, brothers, solely to imitate God's love. It's a posture of the heart that loves other believers. You will not find in any credible translation that your conversion, proof of your Christianity, is measured by your love of anything but believers. We're commanded to love our neighbors as ourselves, but we're not commanded to love the world. We're not commanded to love the spirit of the world, the ideologies of the world, the, the, the air in which the world lives. We're commanded to love our neighbors. Yes. But your Christianity is in question if you don't love the brothers. You won't find the credible translation where your Christianity is in question about loving the world. But you will. You will give an account for your love for those who profess to believe as you do. Love is a posture of the heart. And by posture, I don't mean emotionally driven. A posture of the heart is commitment driven. It's not emotionally driven. A posture of the heart is just a phrase that say, I'm committed to doing this. It's in my heart to do this. It's a commitment to love. It doesn't eliminate emotion, but it's not dependent on emotion. That's what biblical love means. We'll flush that out a little bit more. Love is committed to a certain way. It's committed to act a certain way, not feel a certain way. This love is different. So he starts off, dear friends, let us love one another. And then he says this, because love is from God and everyone who loves have been born of God and knows God. So here's our first reason why, because God is love. God is love. Now, there's a lot here to unpack in the second part of verse seven. Listen to what he said. He says, born of God. So that everyone who loves God and everyone who has been born of God and knows God. So everyone who loves has been born of God. And knows God. These are two characteristics, born of God. This is the same language that Jesus uses in John 3 with Nicodemus. We call born again. See, when God says born of God, he means you're not born of God to be the same way you were before God. You're not born of God to love the same way you did before God because everybody knows how to love. But not like this, though. This is the love that's born of God. And the love that's born of God is supposed to love like God. So when he says born of God, he's not talking about the same love that you had before God. This is why we have to differentiate between our emotional capacity towards things and something much deeper than that, which we'll get to shortly. This is not a love that everyone does because not everyone is born of God. So by default, it tells us this cannot mean just my emotional capacity towards people. Because everybody loves people and loves to be loved by people. 
But not everyone is born of God, loves God, wants to be loved by God, and wants to love like God. So this is something different. This is a much deeper reality. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. So the assumption is that you've been born of God and you know God. That means you have not just general information. This know talks about personal relationship. I know a lot of people here, but there's some people I really know in this room. When I was in high school, I, in every, every stage of school I was in, elementary, middle school, high school, I was always really popular. And I remember one time in high school, the security guard, her name was Miss Shelton, but I used to joke and call her Miss Bookman, named from uh, 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 Good Times. Y'all don't know about that. A couple of y'all do. Some of y'all are like, Good Times? What are you, what good times? Google it. But I used to call her Miss Bookman. And one day, we was walking in the hallway, and she said, Curry, you got, I said, I forgot how it came up, but somehow it came up, man, you so popular, you got all these friends. And I remember, I didn't say it, somebody else said it, they walked up to us, and then she said, she was shocked, she looked at me and said, Curry, you don't, got, you don't got a lot of friends. She said, you got a lot of acquaintances. She said, but when you graduate high school, all the fun and joking that you've done for these people, you ain't going to see most of them when you leave here. And she was dead right. Only a handful of people still are my friends from high school. Shoot, I've been friends with people in this church. They move on and leave. I don't talk to them again. Not often. This isn't just knowing God. There's a lot of people that know about God, but this is talking about you've been born of God, so you have a personal relationship with him. People have been born of God, try to love like God. This is the connection. This is what the passage is saying. And people who love like God are people that know God or better known by God. This is the reality. The first reason why we love, this is our reminder, because God is love. And those of us who are born of God also know God which means we have to love like God. And then he gives the negative reality of this reminder. And this is the truth. This is God's word. This is the sobriety of the situation. Here's the negative reality of this reminder in verse 8. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. So if nothing else, if we stopped right here, this was it. If this was like one of them Catholic homilies that they do like 10, 12 minutes of and be like, oh, man. If we stopped right now and we ended here, then this is what we would be left with. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. That's a serious statement. The one who does not love. If nothing else, this verse addresses how serious the command of love is. Look, all of us have issues in our lives that we are harder to go after and we put to the side. All of us do. All of us. Top down, right? All of us have issues that we'll get to. Kind of like house chores. Like, I'll get to that later. 
There's some areas where we're going to get to them. We know we got to grow and we'll get to it later. But love, we don't have that option. Because there's many things you can struggle with and be saved. But love is not one of them. Love is not one of them. You cannot be unloving and expect to, be, to receive that love in return when you stand before them. Love, biblically speaking, is serious. It's different. And the scripture says a person who does not know, who does not love, does not know God. And a person who does not know who God is will not be able to go where God lives. And sadly, love has become such an optional commodity in much of the professing church, at least in America that I see. The reminder and the first why we love is because God is love. And we've been born of him. And we know him. So we have to love like him. Second, second component, the revelation. The revelation, look at this in verse 9. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So our first reason for why we love is that God is love. The second reason, he says, is because he loves us. This verse also gives the distinctive quality of biblical love. Like, what's the quality? Like, what's the, what, what is it that's different about this love than other loves? And he says it in here. We'll get to it in just a moment. Pay attention to this in verse 9. God's love is revealed among us. Those words, revealed among us. This is not something that someone discovered. This is not something that someone found. This is not on Oprah's list. This is not in, this is not in, the, in the love languages. This is not in some philosophical treatise on what love is. This is something that is revealed. This makes it different. You see, love for when, 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 a, when a parent has a child, that's not revealed love. That's instinctive love. When two people fall in love, that's not revealed from God. That's emotional. When you love your job or you love your pet or you love your family or friends, or your, that's not something that's revealed. That's something that's instinctive. It comes from you. This love comes from God. It's revealed. That's an intentional making known. God intentionally made known the kind of love he's talking about. He revealed it. We didn't find it. We didn't discover it. We didn't create it. It doesn't come from us. It's revealed among us, but it didn't come from us. This is different. I love to hang, hug and kiss my boys. I love to hang with them. I love to do stuff and be just crazy in my house, make faces, make my family laugh. I love it. But that's instinctive as a dad. 
as a husband. That's not, that's not revealed. He said, this love has been revealed among us. This is intentionally made known. God intentionally made known his love among us. If we continue on, it says, God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. There are a few times in the scriptures where Jesus is called his one and only son. You ever wonder why he says that? There, God's making a distinction for us. You know, angels are often, particularly in the Old Testament, called the sons of God. But he's making a distinction when he says his one and only son. He doesn't say it every time, but he says it a few times in the scriptures so that we understand something, that there is an intimate relationship that he has with Jesus. He says his one and only son. Sure, the angels are the sons of God, but when he's talking about the kind of intimate relationship, he's talking about his one and only son. And for us, that's supposed to resonate because if God loves his one and only son in such an intimate way and he sent his one and only son to to die for us, then by default, then God loves us in an intimate way. We're supposed to be connected. We're supposed to be affected by the fact that he said his one and only son for us, which means the intimacy that he has for the son, he somehow has for us. So he describes it in a way, if we can understand as finite as our minds are, our inability to grasp these eternal truths, these things, we can't always get it, right? But if we can just process how precious the Son is to the Father, then it should translate how precious we are also to the Son and the Father. This is a distinction. And you see it at the end of verse 9. He says, so that so God sent his one and only son into the world. Why? So that we might live through him. That's the intimate connection. He didn't just send him into the world. He said, I'm going to send my one and only son whom I love so that you can live through him. This is a revealed love. It's different. This is different. And he explains it in verse 10. He goes a little step further. He says this, love, biblical love, consists in this. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And herein, we get the distinctive quality of biblical love. It's sacrificial. It's a sacrificial love. Sure, there's emotion wrapped up in it, but sacrificial love isn't contingent upon just how I feel. It's contingent upon a commitment that I've made. It's sacrificial. This is the pinnacle of biblical love. And God is communicating this to us so that we are motivated to love sacrificially because he loves us sacrificially. But there's one more component to this that's in this passage that we'll see in the verses next. There's a secret sauce. Because you could make an argument that, hey, loving as a parent is sacrificial. Loving as a spouse or a child or, is sacrificial. I know people that have pets are like, man, I got to take my dog to the vet again. So I know people who will try to preserve their dog's life until the last moment. They love them. They're sacrificed there. 
But there's another component. You see, all of these things that we talked about last week in 1 Corinthians 13, these are things that non-Christians pursue too, right? This is why we said you can go to any wedding, whether people are Christians or not, and here, love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy, does not boast, it's not arrogant, it's not rude, it's not self-seeking, it's not irritable, does not keep a record of wrong. These are all things that people strive for in the romantic, parental, familial, and occupational understandings of love. These are all things that can be pursued by love, but these are all motivated by how I feel. All of these. I love my job. Why? Because it makes me feel like I'm doing something. I love my kids. I love, these are all motivated by how I feel. But love, biblically speaking, is not motivated by how I feel about you. Biblical love is motivated by how God feels about me. That's the difference. See, love motivated by how I feel about you can come and go depending on what you do to me. But when I'm motivated by love, not because of how I feel about you, but because of how God feels about me, then it doesn't really matter what you do to me. Because I'm not motivated by your response. I'm not motivated by your love for me. I'm motivated by his love for me. And that leads me to be loving, and there's freedom in that. Because I'm, not, I'm no longer bound to just how I feel. If I don't feel like loving you in an emotional capacity, I can love you in a sacrificial capacity because my motive is not how I feel about you. It's how God feels about me. That's the secret. It's the motivation for love. That's the secret. And this is what we've lost as a church. Everything is about, do you agree with me? Do you agree with me theologically? Do you agree with me politically? Do you agree with me in, 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 in habits and patterns? Do you agree with me? Biblical love says, hey, I'm motivated because of what he said about me. In other words, I'm trying to love you the way God says he loves me. And that's not contingent upon it. Look what did he say in the passage. Look, 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 look back at this. Look what he says. Love is this, not that we love God, but that he loved us. So my love and imitation of God is not that you love me, but that I love you. I don't need you to love me back to love you because biblical love is motivated by his love for me, not your love for me or my love for you even. This is the secret sauce that makes the burger right. This is it. This is freedom. Because I can love people who hate me because I'm not motivated by them recognizing what I'm doing for them. I mean, I've got this wrong the majority of my life. I mean, I've always known that it isn't exactly what I think it is, but I, I, if you don't love me, I'm not tripping. I'm from there. I'm like, if you don't love me, then cool. I just walk past. It ain't nothing. No harm, no foul. I don't got, I don't got to talk to you. We don't got to talk. Well, you know, well, I ain't no harm, no foul. I don't actively dislike you, but I'm not actively loving you either. That's, that's a hard thing to go by. It's a hard thing to live by, because it happens to all of us, right? We all have people that we just like, man, all right, cool, I'm, I'm okay. Ooh, I'm, family gatherings, cool, stay away from them. Church members that offended you, cool, I don't got to talk to them. I can love them from a distance. I'm not saying there's not wisdom in that, but sometimes when we, when we make decisions based upon how we feel, 
we'll make a lot of bad decisions about what love is biblically. But when we love because we're motivated by God, we'll do crazy stuff. We'll do stuff like turn the other cheek. We'll do stuff like let somebody hurt your feelings and you overlook it. We'll do stuff like let somebody kill us and we do nothing but say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Because the motivation for love is not how you feel about me or how I feel about you. The motivation biblically is how he feels about me. So I'm free to love you regardless. I'm free to love you irrespective of your love for me. That's what makes us different. If we don't have the motive of love because of that, we won't do it. We won't do it. Yeah, we'll be, yeah, there's feelings, yeah. We have to train ourselves to not evaluate our love based on how we feel about people because it's easier to love and agree with this when we feel a certain way about people, but that's not what God is talking about because that's not a love that's been revealed from God. That's love that he gave you because you're made in his image. Serial killers smile in pictures. You look, at, you look at stories of serial killers, man, they got families. Eat dinner with their families, tuck their kids in the night and go kill four or five people. Come back home next morning, hey, honey, make her breakfast. That's not biblical. The biblical love says, hey, I'm motivated by his love for me. And so I can do this. I can be patient. I can be kind. I can fight. I can... I can Resist being irritable, self-righteous, rude, and this and that because I'm, I'm motivated by his love for me. Way different. It's a different ballgame. This imitation of loving others does not require that people love us. And the willingness to love sacrificially is that he sacrificially loved me so much so that he died on the cross. This is the motive and the secret to biblical love. It's what motivates that love for you. If it's motivated by your feelings, they will wane. Every relationship, it will wane. Those feelings will slowly go away. They'll come back and forth. Roller coaster. One day you really love this person. The next day, man, you wish you never met him. So why do we love first? Because God is love. That's the reminder. The revelation is that he loves us. The third component is the responsibility. Verse 11 through 14. He says, as dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we must also love one another. No woman has ever seen God. If we love one another, God remains in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we remain in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and we testify that the Father has sent his Son as the world's Savior. So here's the key phrase in verse 11. If God loved us in this way. Okay, that's, that's, what, that's the recalibration. It's not God loved us from an emotional perspective, but in this way. Which is sacrificial. If he loved us in this way, we must also love one another. This is not just an emotional, fuzzy feeling where it's easy to love somebody because your feelings determine how much you're willing to do for them. No, he said, in this way, God said, look, I'm going to give up my one and only son to die brutally. 
so that you can live through them. See, we're too used to hearing that. We're too used to hearing the cross and all of that, and we sing it, and we we got to step back a little bit and recognize, okay, what kind of love is this? I wouldn't give up none of my sons to save anybody in this room. I'm that selfish. Not one of you, especially if I knew you was going to sin in the same way after I gave his life up for yours. I ain't that mature. And here God says, I'm giving my one and only son. So if God loved us in this way, this is a distinction. Shoot, if we took the T off of this, it would say in his way. This is where we have to renew our minds to this truth that our love must be in this way. And again, we're wired emotionally. It's the way God made us. There's nothing wrong with emotions, but emotions cannot dictate this kind of love. What dictates this kind of love is his love for me. That's what I'm motivated by. It's not how we feel about others, but by how God feels about us. Verse 12, he says this, no one has ever seen God. Now, in context, we believe that John was writing to believers who were being deceived by what's called Gnosticism. There were these people that were saying that they've seen these appearances of God. And there's a special revelation that God directly gave them. And that if you haven't really seen, had these certain Gnostic, these spiritual mystic revelations, and you're not really a Christian. You don't really know who God is if you haven't seen these visions that these people have. So John just says this, man, no one has ever seen God. He's talking about, man, they haven't seen God. He's pushing back against heretical theology. No one's ever seen God. And his point is, look, seeing God is irrelevant for obe obeying God. But I think he's actually making a deeper point than just that. I don't think he's pushing back beyond just that. When he says no one has ever seen God, I think what he's saying is if you want proof of existence, if you want proof of seeing God, then loving one another is proof. You want to say you see God, you want proof, then love one another sacrificially like this. That's proof that the Spirit's working. That's what God is. God is not in crafty theological sermons and because I'm dressed up in a suit and I can explain the Greek and the Hebrew and that means nothing because the Pharisees did the same thing Jesus walked among scribes Pharisees and all these people and he would say stuff like this these people honor me with their lips but their hearts are far from me everybody can say oh I'm a Christian I know God but you don't love like him and some people don't even care to love like him I'm talking about believers I'm not talking about non-believers Make excuses that you don't have to love because it's hard or because it's not your personality. And listen, if we want heaven to be our place, we better make love part of our personality. Listen, this is the type of stuff that God, you may take, you may be like, man, Kirk, come strong. He might, this might be, listen, the passage is saying what it's saying. God isn't, I'm not being too critical of the, the passage is saying if you do not love, and you'll see this in just a moment that you are not of God. These are not my words. Don't shoot the messenger. Don't hate the player, hate the game. If you want to see proof of God's existence, 
then it must be seen in proof of love's existence among believers. And by this, I'm talking about believers. He's talking about brothers and sisters. He's not talking about your neighbor right now. The conversion and the proof of your genuine conversion is that, man, you love other people who profess to believe like you. And it's not motivated because you have a deep relationship with them and you spend time. There's people in this room that are tight with each other because they spent time together. He's not talking about that because there are people right next door to the Jehovah's Witness building that are tight with each other because they spent time together. There are Muslims all across the world that are tight with each other because they spent time together. He's talking about we're tight with each other because we're motivated by how God loves us. And I'm relating to you this way because of that, whether you stop loving me or not. I can be sacrificial in my love towards you because it's not dependent on my feelings for you. This is why he says, if we love one another, God remains in us and his love is made complete in us. That's a crazy statement. If we love one another, then God remains in us. If we love one another. So by implication, if we don't, then guess what? He doesn't remain in us. What are we talking about? The reason why we're seeing so much turmoil in the church is because a lot of people are unloving. So God is not remaining with folks. Listen, sometimes people think like God is like, once you become a Christian, like that said, you just, it's just God, grace is so amazing, whatever. There are conditions for what we believe. Jesus said, if you don't forgive others their trespasses, you won't be forgiven yours. So if you're a person who says they believe, but you can't overlook people offending you and you keep your records of wrong and hold them against them, then when you stand before God, he's going to show you the records of wrong you got against you. By Felicia. This is just the way he is. This is what he said. He didn't say by Felicia, but. It's, this is, I mean, I'm telling you, this is one of those areas where it's not a game from God's perspective. Sure, I'm a crack jokes and stuff. That's just my personality. I'm intense when I preach. I'm in the moment. Cool. But this is real. This ain't got nothing to do with my intensity. It has to do with God's verbosity. These are his words. Proof of genuine conversion is, is that he's given us his spirit. And this goes back to verses one through six, the testing of the spirits. He's given us a spirit, a spirit that wants to love like God and obey God is from God. Spirits that don't need to do that, that make excuses for that or find other ways to love other than that are not from God. The desire in us to love comes from the spirit. And when we are motivated to love, we are motivated to love by his spirit. This is why love is significant. It's further evidence that his spirit is in us. I've been to churches where people are just cold, standoffish, rude, Stuff like in, and man, people act like that's okay. They, they, we know they say they've been in church all their life. I can't tell. <laughs> now, I'm not saying this self-righteously. It's just like, wow, fam, like I don't see no love from you. See no love from you. You critical, complain, negative, judgmental, and then you expect God to be like, come on in. In Matthew 7, when he said, when they said, Lord, didn't we do mighty works in your name? And he said, depart from me, I never knew you. So it's clear that the works that you can do in his name don't justify him knowing you, right? You can do a lot of stuff in his name. You can shout and do all that and do everything you want. You can cast out demons and do all that. God will allow that to happen because he's God. Shoot, demons will always run in the name of Jesus. They ain't got nothing to do power with you. It's got to be power with him. He's saying, look, but if you're unloving, though, that's how I know you're from me, because love, I'm love. 
and I love, so you must love. That's how I recognize. I recognize you by your love for your brothers. In verse 14, that we have seen and we testify that the Father has sent his Son in the world as his Savior. This is, love is, was, was intended by God between believers to be so significant that it was supposed to show the world that, wow, this is different. This love was supposed to be so different than the love that other people saw that they were like, there's no way. I mean, even if you don't agree, those are the Christians. Why? Because they would do anything for each other. They would do, they'll go to all lengths for each other. That's how we know who they are. They'll do whatever for each other. That's our responsibility. It's to love because we're motivated by God's love for us, and that frees us. I'm freed by that. Doesn't mean I don't have to work. We're not talking about ease. There's nothing about believing in God that's easy. We're not talking about how easy it is to do this. We're talking about how important it is to do this, how necessary it is. But this motivation has been freeing me lately. I'd be like, wow, Lord, I'm, yeah, man, I, I, love is too much about how I feel about things. But there's one other thing that's a little deeper. We'll get to that. And the last point, number four. So we got the reminder. We got number two, the revelation. We got the responsibility and the fourth component, which will answer the last, the last, the last way. There's three ways that we love, right? Re- reasons why. Because God is love. Because he loves us. And the third way will come in this fourth component is called the recompense, or sort of like the reward, but re- recompense is different than reward. It's a little, little bit more serious than reward. It's more paid back compensation. It's, it's, it's more than just a reward. The recompense. And he says this in verse 15. This is our closing verses. He says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God remains in him and he in God. And we have come to know and believe that the, Father, the love that God has for us, God is love. And the one who remains in love remains in God, and God remains in him. So we're going to get some repetitive language. So I'm not going to, we're going to go back through. I'm not going to hit every one of these verses because he's re- reiterating what's, what we already know. But it's important. Repetition is the father of learning or mother of learning for you feminists. In this, love is made complete with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love. Instead, Perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears is not complete in love. We have loved because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. For the person who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And we have this command from him, the one who, God, who, the one who loves God must also love his brother and sister. So this passage starts off with whoever confesses. This, this confesses is just verbally communicating what you already believe in your heart. But I want us to look at verse 16. We're going to look at three verses out of this pile. Look at verse 16. And we have come to know and to believe the love of God, the love that God has for us. Listen to these phrases. Come to know and to believe. These are crucial statements. 
because they both indicate faith and process. It says, we have come to know. That's a process. He's come to know. We've come to understand. We've come to believe. We've come, we, we get it. It's, we've come to know. It's taken some time. It's a process. We're in process, right? He's come to know and to believe. So as he's come to know this, he's come to believe that this is true about God. See, this is a process, and this requires faith. You see what he's saying? It's a process that's, that, that we need to have faith that God actually loves us the way that he says he does. Because here's the kicker. Sometimes we measure God's love for us by how we think he feels about us. So it requires faith to believe that God actually loves us the way he says it. So it's a process. We've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. This is the Apostle John who walked with Jesus is saying this. It wasn't like they just saw the Savior and felt like, oh, he loves us. But after three years of spending time with this man, after years of doing ministry in the spirit and praying to this man, he's come to know and have faith and to believe God's love for us, and it's the same for us. This is a process, and this is faith. Faith isn't just I believe that he died for the, on the cross for my sins. It's I believe that he says I'm his son or I'm his daughter. And then we come across the third reason why we love. The three of three is in verse 17. In this, love is made complete with us. Why? So that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Man, we could do a sermon just on how confidence is used in the New Testament. I looked this up and I was like, wow. So here's what he's saying. Our love for one another, the love that's motivated by his love for me, not my feelings for you, or your feelings for me, rather. That love and doing that gives us confidence on the day of judgment. So unloving Christians will not stand there confident on the day of judgment. You may be confident in the flesh before judgment, but when we see God, we're going to know what time it is. Oh, man, I'm not going to make it. It's going to be instinctive. The attitudes, the excuses for the attitudes, the lack of pursuit of. When you see the God of love, that's what he says. And he says it's because as he is, so also are we in the world. Oh, man, so he's saying this. If you're loving because you're motivated by how, my love for you and this is how you're living, this is how I am. Let's, let's be honest, right? We love God, right? We do. We say we do. But how unloving are we towards God consistently? Who's loved God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength? What day was that? If you did it one day, mark that on your calendar because it won't be every day. But in Jesus, it's every day. 
because we're living through Jesus, God sees our love for him the way Jesus did. That's a different sermon. He's saying, look, the third reason why we love is so we'll have confidence. You know, a lot of us don't have confidence in this life. It's because we're unloving. It's not because we, we don't read. We don't, we're unloving. But it gets a little deeper. It gets a little deeper. And I think verse 18 explains the reason why it's difficult to love like God. Here's where it gets deeper. Verse 18, there's no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears is not complete in love. And herein lies a big problem for us. Many of us are more concerned than we are confident about our relationship in Christ. We're more concerned than we are confident. And I think probably the reason why is because we're wired to evaluate love as an emotion. Love is how we feel. And just like we're motivated to love others based on how we feel, which is not biblical, we believe God loves us based on a criteria that's not biblical. The biblical criteria for loving others is not how I feel about them, but how God feels about me. The biblical criteria for coming to know and believe that God loves us is not by how I feel. The biblical criteria for that is that his son's blood was spilled. So how are we more concerned than confident? In fact, the scripture says if you're more concerned, I'm using that as interchangeable with fear. If you're more concerned than you are confident, it could be because you don't believe his love. I would say based on the passage, I think it's because we're afraid of his love. We're so hardwired to evaluate how, what people do as an expression of their love. And let's just be honest. God, the greatest expression of God's love is through serious punishment of his son. And we see this trajectory through the scriptures of God's love being through people suffering. And I think at times, many, if not all of us, are just downright afraid of his love. We don't have confidence in it. Because we measure love by how we think he feels about us. Just like we measure our love for others by how we feel about them. And if I, don't, if I measure it by how I think God feels about me, and I measure that because I don't know how God feels, I have to measure it by what he allows to happen in my life, then I become afraid of his love. But the scripture says there's no fear in love. This is God's word. Perfect love drives out fear. In other words, understanding God's love for us Truly connecting to him sending his one and only son for us drives out fear. Why? Because fear has to do with punishment. Many of us think God is just waiting to blast us. Or we pray for things and don't get things that we want or things happen that we didn't want to happen. And then we think God's love is just removed from us. And I, and I understand. I get it. I, I can be that way too. I remember, I remember being when my boys were young. I remember Santiago had some health issues and he had to have some, like a little surgery and stuff. And I remember thinking that, man, God was doing this because he was mad at something I did when I was in the street. I had this retribution theology perspective. 
Say, God was punishing me because I did this. I used to think like that all the time. I remember there was a period where I didn't even want to ask God for nothing because I didn't want him to say no. So I just made myself think I'm not asking for nothing. I don't even want to ask God for anything because I don't want to be told no because to me that was unloving. I don't want to be disappointed. I want to control how I suffer. So if I don't want anything, then I can't suffer by not having it. Are we preaching today, huh? I'm sorry to get back in that black church for a minute. You know, I don't do that. Y'all started. Y'all started it. Listen, we have to fight against making God's love submit to how we feel about it. And we have to let it be what he reveals about it. You know why he says there's, there's no fear in love? Because love has to do with, fear has to do with punishment. You know why he says that? He says, listen, I already punished my son. What are you talking about? I already punished my son. My son, Von Von, he'll do this often, like if I correct him for something. Von Von, he, he could be angry sometimes, but he has a real tender heart. And he'll be the first one to come back. And Actually, all my sons have tender hearts, but, and they'll do this. But Von Von will come back and say, Papi, I'm sorry, please, please, I'm sorry that I said this or did that or that I was angry. I'm like, it's okay, Von Von, we talked about it. You know, I hug him and kiss him. He might come back in an hour later. Papi, I'm sorry that I, I said, Von Von, go ahead, man. Like, I love you. You know, I got you, Von with you. You know, I mess with him, let him know I love him. It's cool. I got it. It's all forgiven. It's over. And then eventually he'll get it. Now, what I appreciate is the tenderness of his heart. But what he doesn't understand is it's forgiven, son. I'm not holding that against you. I'm not even angry. I'm not, I wasn't angry when it happened. I'm not angry now. You don't have to keep asking me for forgiveness. God is saying it's, it's over. The punishment, it already happened. Your punishment already happened on the cross. What are you still afraid of that for? You're denying my love for you because you're afraid I'm going to punish you? I punished Jesus for you. It's over. Now live in love. Live free from the judgment. Hebrews 2, the devil, he defeated the devil who held people captive by their fear of death. The, the, the fear of death is removed for the believer. It doesn't mean that we're looking, we got a death wish. It just means we know what happens when we die. Maybe not the specifics, but ultimately where we'll be. We know the metaphysics of it with God. God is saying, listen, what you, what you mean, fam? <laughs> Already punished Jesus for your sin. It's over. So if there's fear, if we're, if we're more concerned and we are confident, then we don't understand the cross and this is why the scripture says you're not complete in his love. These are God's words. These are God's words. He said you're not complete in his love. Verse 18, so the one who fears is not complete in love. It means you don't get it. We don't get it. We don't get it. Punishment is over. What are we afraid of? Are we afraid of his love? Sometimes I say this. I think this way. 
And I think, okay, my kids are, my family, my wife, my, I've been married 16 years, my kids are 12, 11, and 10. I love them. I've demonstrated that for them. I don't need to keep proving that I love my family because that's dead. Doesn't mean you don't strive to do things. Doesn't mean you don't go against that love, but that, that's dead. God, if I don't, if I feel this way, God does not have to keep proving that he loves you. He's not going to keep trying to prove it to us. He's already done it for us. If, if, if we're not looking at his only son as proof of his love, what else is God supposed to do? So how does giving you a job, a spouse, a baby, or some material need be more loving than him giving his son for the forgiveness of your sins so that we can spend eternity with him? Unbalanced scales, church. I think God is saying here, man, look, answering your prayer doesn't prove I love you more than forgiving your sin. Removing this trial doesn't mean I love you more than putting my son on trial. This is what he's getting at. God is saying, be motivated by how I'm telling you I feel about you. And that's, there's a freedom in that. So now I can love people because I'm motivated by that. But when I love people based upon how I feel, man, I could, man I'm not in the mood today. <laughs> I don't feel like talking right now. So I want to be left alone. We need to come to know and to believe that the cross is the true representation of his love so that we can be motivated by his love. And it empowers us to love others. If we are motivated by his love for us, that it'll be easy for people to experience love from us. Church, I, I, I preached a lot of sermons in my 12 years of being here. And I'm grateful for all of them, even the ones where I was just way off. So I say this as your pastor for the last 12 years. I am appealing to you. Take this message these verses more seriously than you've ever taken anything I've ever said to you. Because if you don't, you will make excuses. And when we stand before God, he won't accept them. This is his word. And he's saying, I punished Jesus for you, as love for you and me. We must be motivated by that. Anything I've ever said that you agree with, put this at the top. Because this is what's most important. You know, here's the proof of it, verse 20. 
If anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. Think about that for a second. What liars do you know are going to make it in eternity with God? Because if you say you love God, but you hate your brother or sister, think of all the things that we hate people for. And don't think, well, I don't hate nobody. Hate is redefined in the Bible. Jesus said in Matthew 5, if you say you fool to your brother, you can go to hell. Shoot, we say that all the time. Maybe not those two words, but words worse than that. He says, if anyone says I love God and yet hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. For the person who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. That's interesting. So if you don't love the people that you actually do see, then God says, how can you love me whom you don't see? You love a spirit And you don't love people who profess to believe in the same thing you do? That you can spend time with and get to know? He says, you're a liar. You know, some people got offended when I was talking about politics. Two words, so what? Because if I think it's going to cause people to be unloving, I care more about that than I do who you vote for. I've said it then, I'll say it again, I'll say it on November 2nd, 1st, I'll say it on December. This is what matters. How dare anyone hate somebody because of who they voted for? Do you get what God is saying? You're a liar. This isn't my words. This is what he's saying. It doesn't work for him. We're all going to have differences. Revelation 7 tells us every tribe, tongue, and nation, there will be people all over the place. God's not an American. He's not conservative. He's not liberal. He's not a Republican. He's not a Democrat. God is God. God doesn't speak English. He created the language. Heaven's not going to be filled with people. Hey, how you doing, man? It would be wild if somebody was dapping up in heaven. Hey, fam, we made it, home. We made it. I mean, it might happen. says, if I love God and hate my brother, I'm a liar. And I think many professing believers, even pastors who hate their brothers. And you know what? Here's what happens. Let me tell you how people get out of loving their brother, saying he's not one. He's not a brother. He believes this. He voted this. He thinks this. He's not a brother. Okay, well then God said, love your neighbor. no escape. There is no other way around this. To be loving like God, it does not depend on how we feel about others. It depends on how much we believe what God feels about us, what he says about us. That's the motivation. So we're free to love people, not because they agree with or treat us a certain way, 
but because he treats us a certain way. That's the motivation. That's the secret. That's why we love, because he loves us. So that we all have confidence on the day of judgment and because God is love. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for just your word and the emphasis on love. I thank you for this particular passage and ways that you've been dealing with me from the book, Loving Your Enemies. And just in general, even before the book, just different things that were happening, but, but I feel like you have given me a real good framework to understand why I should be loving, to know what love is, and to next week to look at how do we love. Father, I pray you've allowed me to teach many things. I've memorized many scriptures. I've read many books to grow in my knowledge and experience and growth in you. But Father, I would trade everything I've ever read, everything I've ever done to be more loving like you. Help us to come to know and to believe the love that you have for us. This sermon, even if people agree with it, in and of itself will not make any changes. But Lord, I pray that we would reread, re-listen, whatever it need be, to meditate on this reality that our love and the command to be loving is not motivated by our love for people. It's motivated by your love for us. Lord, help us to, to make the connection that this frees us to love people because it doesn't, it's not connected to whether they love us back or, how, or if we, how we feel about them, it's sacrificial, it's deeper than emotion. It's motivated by your love for me. In any situation, Lord, I pray that you would allow this to sit, resonate, and grow in our hearts. And again, this is a process, and we need faith. But I pray that you would remind us of both. We're in process, it requires faith. But Lord, I pray that you would not let anyone be deceived into thinking that this love is, we're waiting to feel a certain way. We're so wired to do things when we feel them. And we may never feel, or, it might, or thinking that we need to love the way you love based on our feelings is overwhelming. That motive is overwhelming because I don't always feel loving. I don't always feel love towards people. I don't always feel love even towards myself 
Lord, but help me to remember that this love is not motivated by how I feel for others, but how you feel about me. And by feel, I mean what you've said about me, what you've done for me, Lord. Help us recognize that the death of your one and only son that we're so familiar with is way more serious than we've seen it before. Not so that we can take any credit, but so that we can glorify you in the pursuit of what it means to love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have any questions, you can text your questions to 240-623-8076. And our first question is, who are our neighbors? Everybody that's not you. Our neighbors are always everybody but you. Everyone but you. We'll get to this a little bit later, but there is a difference, though, to loving your neighbor and loving your brother. There's a difference. Jesus didn't say a new command I give you, love your neighbor. He said a new command I give you is to love one another. There's a difference between loving your neighbor. We'll get into that next week when we talk about how do we love. This next person says, I feel like I always get trapped in a cycle of wanting to love everyone and reach out to everyone and feel like it's not enough. Tangibly, what, is it, what does this radical life of love look like on our daily schedules? I understand the question. I just want to wait till next week to answer it. Because <laughs> next week we're going to get into how. So I'm going to ask you, hold that question, and then next week. If it didn't make sense, then ask that after next week's message. How we love is next week. What does that look like? Okay. That's a great question. I just don't want to answer it now. It is. I like that question. How do we fix or grow out of evaluations God love based on how we think God feels about us if we have long struggled with retribution theology? Mm -hmm. So I think a couple things. I think one, you have to read passages. So this, this is the thing. When you think about retribution theology, right? These are lies, right? So, so whenever it's not from God, it's not true. All right? So we have to replace truth over the lie, right? So you can't just stop believing the lie unless you replace it with something that's true. Mm -hmm. So you have to read passages. You have to pray. Like when I did, when I grew in this, it wasn't like it just happened. Like I can easily judge. It can be easy to judge God's love for me based on God's, what he lets happen in my life or how I feel about it. If I feel loved by God. And what that does is I just arrogantly put myself in the position of God. Like, I'm defining good and evil now on my terms versus God's, where I'm deciding what love is and how it, how it should be administrated. And it's like, no, I need to find verses that specifically will help me remember what to believe. Then I need to pray, Lord, help me grow in this. Help me believe this. Help me believe this to be true. And then, and then with that now, with growing and with praying, you know, I think, and then I think we start acting. I think part of the, one of the things that, I don't know who asked this question, but, and we'll talk about this Wednesday night at our one another meeting. I want to talk about this. There was a concept that he brought up about faking it, like love until it comes in, like, like, 
Like emotions follow actions. And some people are like, well, I don't want to be fake. We're going to talk about that. I want to talk about that specifically next Wednesday. But there is a sense where we're called to do things that have nothing to do primarily with if we feel those things. Like, I, like who, I mean, how many of us get into an argument with someone and can't wait to go back and ask for forgiveness? You just don't want to do that. <laughs> but we're commanded to forgive, right? To ask for forgiveness, right? So these things go against our natural desire. So I think you have to pray. I think you have to read passages like 1 John 4 and other passages where Jesus is talking about God. The Gospel of John is a wonderful passage about God's love. Um, the same author who wrote 1 John. I think we have to, you have to soak yourself in that. Pray that God would help you, and then you have to start showing love towards other people. It's just there's no, like, real shortcut around it. It's just that we just got to renew our minds is what the Scripture tells us. Second Corinthians 10, take every thought captive that raises itself against the knowledge of Christ. That's what we have to do. This person wants to get a biblical perspective on uh, street preaching. There's a lot of opinions if they are loving enough. Since a majority of them preach about hell, some say that it's biblical. Others say that it drives people away. What are your thoughts on the effectiveness, or rather, if there's a right way to do it? You know, the challenge with street preaching is you have to be animated. If you're trying to get an audience to come listen to you, you got to be animated, right? And the things that make people listen for the most part, are provocative. Or they're provocative things that make people listen. So a street preacher who's yelling things out, his, his projection may seem like he's angry and intense, but that might just be the mode in which he has to communicate. Like when I preach, sometimes I'm intense. But it's not like I'm not angry or, or any. It's just that's the moment. That's where I feel like the spirit has me in that moment. It's connected to who I am as a person when I'm preaching. But Pat, pulpit Kurt is different than counseling Kurt. I don't know if the, if, the, if the open air preacher dude is the same way without it. So the way to evaluate good open air preaching is what's the emphasis? One, not, don't worry about the tone just yet. Because if, you're trying, if you don't got no mic or even if you do, you're talking to people, you're trying to get their attention, right? You're trying to get people to stop and listen to you. Start with evaluating what's the message? What's the heart of the message? If someone's just screaming, you're all going to go to hell because then I don't think that's loving. Jesus didn't do that at all. The disciples didn't do that at all. They don't start with the, they start with, they start with the positive, though. They, start, they don't start with, you're going to hell if you don't. I mean, people, that's just going to offend people. So again, I start with, what's the message? Like, what's the, what's the meat of what they're saying? And then, then I look at, so it's content, like content first. What are they saying? Then I, and, and this is if, even if I'm listening, really, right? Then I want to listen to how does the person, like, is the person able to communicate with others? What does he communicate with others? You know, open-air preaching is such a, it's just not, it's not unbiblical, but it's not biblical. I mean, Paul and them did that, sure. You got Acts 17, Paul did that. We read the words, but we don't know what his tone was like. We don't know what his production was like. I think a lot of it is just content. I think if, if there's a lot of judgmental tone, a lot of judgmental words, a lot of that, and there's not a sense of, man, Jesus is, wants to, I, it's, it's very, because you have to also be careful about making God loves you as the message too, right? Because it's true, but it's misleading. 
John 3.18, if a person doesn't believe in the son, he's condemned already. So you don't want to tell people, hey, God loves you, so they walk away feeling, feeling good, and, and, and they're really still condemned. So there, it's a challenge to do open-air preaching, but if you, I think if you think in terms of the gospel, the way we think about it is fulfillment, kingdom, salvation, and restoration, I think there's a way to preach the gospel in a way that, and then also I think lastly I'll say this, I think open-air preaching, a lot of it depends on the, the style, the personality, and all of that stuff, but preaching is always depending on what you're saying. It's depending on the spirit. I know I've been to churches where the dude preaches like the teacher in Ferris Bueller, and so the Bible says that, you, and there are people that benefit from that. You can benefit. Some people need to hear more preaching. They need to be a little bit more fired up. You benefit from that. It, it's just, it's, it's different. So it's just kind of hard because, you know, it's the heart of the person, honestly. I don't know this open air preacher's heart. What's he motivated by? Is he self-righteous? Man, it sounds like it. So let me listen to what he's saying. You try preaching. <laughs> let me see. You try preaching the same way you would talking to someone one-on-one. -on -one. Impossible. If I preached the way I counsel people, it would not, it would not connect at all. I don't, people wouldn't meet with me if I was always like, and you got to be like this for the Lord. No one would meet with me. <laughs> no one would talk to me. I'm not going to talk to Pastor Kurt. Some people think that's how it's going to be. I'm not like that. Ask many people who've met with me. But, but again, it's the, it's the mode, right? How dare you come in my office? You know, it's just like. That's different than being here and being affected and being in the moment and reach, trying to preach and make sure that the word comes across. And man, you know, after, once, once the lights go off, it's just like, hey, how you doing? How can I help? Ask anybody who's met with me. It's like, how can I help? But that, right? Cool. I only hit you once. <laughs> so yeah, that's the most I can say. I mean, open air preaching is sort of like a, it's just, it's the heart of the person always. God knows the heart. You can judge by the content and then how a person is interacting with people. I mean, if he's putting, if he's putting people down, I, that dude's not loving at all. You know why? Because here's what the, 2 Timothy 2 says this, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, Right? but must instruct his opponents with gentleness. Perhaps God may grant them salvation since they have been taken captive to do the devil's will. So these aren't people, sometimes we get this impression like that, like when God says, I, 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 I laugh at the scoffers and I scoff, the mockers, and we think like, yeah, that's how we're supposed to be. We're never commanded to be like that. God is allowed to be like that. <laughs> He's allowed to say, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. He's allowed to laugh at, the scoffers, because we're not allowed to do that. He says, no, love your neighbor as yourself. If a person forces you to go one way, go, go one mile with them, go with them two. Now, I'm a bit out of shape. I'd be like, hey, look, man, I can't go two miles, but can, I, can we rain check? <laughs> but, you know, there's, there's a sense where we're not supposed to look at people like that, but a lot of Christians look at the world like that, combative, like we need to go against this, and we need to, that's where a lot of the motivations on who to vote for. This world is trying to do this. Of course they are. They're not believers. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5, what have I to do with judging the world? He said, God judges the outsiders. The problem is the church, we judging the outsiders. So if the preaching is judgmental, then you know, oh, that's not from the Lord. How do we separate <clears throat> repenting of sin out of love for God from repenting of sin out of tormenting fear and do the first option? So how do we repent? I just want to make sure I understand. 
How do we repent of sin out of love for God rather than judgment by God? That's what it is. You know, all of these questions are amazing questions, but a lot of them, you know what they're really getting at is like, if they're all how questions, right? How to, well, how, what does it look like? And there's no real easy way to do this. It's, it's, it's what we looked at in the passage already. It's, it's come to know and to believe, right? So it's process and then it's faith. So I think the first thing I would do is, 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 is to believe what's already been revealed to you. Like, you, we don't ask for forgiveness. Now, I'm assuming the person's a Christian. So let me back up. I'm assuming this person's a believer who asked that question. If you're not a believer, it's weird. I can see my hair hanging in front. I know it's weird to me. So, so weird. So if a person is a believer, then there is no punishment for your sin. On you, at least. Like, God has already done that to Jesus. So from the, from the beginning, just from the ground, you're already starting with a false premise that you need to repent of your sin as a believer because of fear and judgment when God said, no, 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 you're already forgiven. Like, that's the whole 1 John 4.18. Like, there's no fear. That's fear. So it's like you're already forgiven. You have to believe that, and you have to ask the Lord to help you believe that. And it's a, and it's a challenge. I mean, remember... Uh, 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 Thomas, right? Thomas was like, I don't believe it until I see his hands and his feet. Until I see the holes in his, and then Jesus showed up and said, look, here you go. But like Thomas couldn't even believe the dudes he spent three years with. He knew the character of the disciples. What would they joke about that for? Why would they joke that Jesus was alive if he wasn't? And Thomas was like, I don't, I'm not tripping. Not until I see the holes in his hands and in his feet. So Jesus showed up just for that one disciple to be like, here you go, Thomas. Put your fingers in. So if the disciples who saw Jesus have challenged believing, then why wouldn't we, right? So it's a process. So don't be discouraged by the process, but you have to fight to believe by praying, by reading, and by, and I don't just mean reading, we need to meditate. I'm, I'm going to man, well, I, I can't, man, we, we, we need to get back together as church because we need to talk about things like meditation. Like, what is that biblically? What is, how do you meditate on scripture? I don't think a lot of us know how to do that. We know how to read the Bible, Sometimes, man, it's just good to read one verse and just sit there for 30 minutes and be like, hold on. This is how I preach. When I'm studying, I'm like, hold on, Lord. I might get caught up on a verse or two and be like, wait a minute. And I just meditate and think about how is this true? And then think about how is it, where else does the Bible confirm this? And then I think about that. Then I think, wow, this is crazy. I might get caught up on one or two verses for a couple of hours. Like, we need to learn how to, because I think what we think is, like, the Bible isn't like a magic pill. Like, let's read this verse and, like, you feel, it's not, you know, it doesn't work like that. It's, it's, a, it's an ongoing process of pursuit of God. And so I would say, whoever you are, like, if you're a believer, there's no punishment for your sin. He already punished Jesus. So now the work is, okay, Lord, I know you've punished me, but I still feel a certain way. Lord, help me to fight against my feelings. And let me not only just read, but let me memorize and let me meditate on promises that go against how I feel. Because if you just try to put off, then you, you got to put on in the New Testament. The Old Testament was all put off. The first, I mean, the first Ten Commandments was mostly do not do this, do not do that, do not do this, do not do that, do not do this. But in the New Testament, he said, but put on this. Put to death these things, but put this on. Put on this, and we'll talk about how and some stuff next week.
Sometimes it's hard to remember how biblical love is more about the commitment than the emotion. Sure. When thinking about God's dynamic with the Israelites, it feels more emotional as Moses is constantly pleasing, pleading for their survival. Can you speak to that a little bit? Well, I think here's the thing we have to remember, right? In Genesis 3.15, God told the serpent, because you've deceived Adam and Eve, she's going to give birth to a seed, and that seed, that person, that human being that she gives birth to, is going to crush your head and bruise your heel, right? Then you fall, go a little further into the biblical story, and you get to Genesis 12, and you pick up on Abraham's narrative, and you get to Genesis 15, and God tells Abraham that your offspring will be a blessing to many nations, and that you're going to be the father of many. If you can count how many stars are in the sky, those are going to be people that are under you because of your offspring, singular, which, which Paul makes clear from Genesis, I mean from Galatians 2, that the offspring uh, that he's talking about was Jesus. So from the beginning, God knew that Jesus is going to come and redeem everything. And his sacrifice would be so crucial that it says in the scriptures that God would overlook the sins of the past because, in Acts 17, we talked about Paul, right? God, there was a time when people were ignorant and God let that go. But now the time of ignorance is over. Jesus has come. He's died on the cross. Now you got to believe. So God always knew that Jesus was going to be the redemption, that his blood would suffice for all those before him and cover all those who were after him. So when he's relating to Israel, he's not relating to Israel separate from Christ's coming. So even in the way he relates to Israel, it's not necessarily the absence of emotion. I would never say that God's not emotional. He's not. But he's sacrificial. It's sacrificial. It's a commitment love. Because if you think about it, like from God's perspective, he should have destroyed all them folks. Like, don't think for a moment that Moses stopped God. God stopped God. <laughs> Moses didn't do anything. He just let that stuff. This is the, this is the humility of God. He will make, in, in the garden, right, after Adam and Eve bite the fruit, God shows up and says, where are you? Maybe he knew where them folks were. But the Lord does stuff like that. So we have to understand that, like, even in his, the way he related to Israel, sacrifice was still a part of it. But what he did was let them institute how to be, what sacrifice looked like. Let them, let them begin the process of sacrifice and blood and a lamb and these things because he knew at some point I'm going to sacrifice the true lamb and let his blood spill out for everybody's sins. So I don't think it's God was emotional and then he's sacrificial. I think they're always together. Remember, Jesus said before Abraham was, I am. Right? So he was always there. It's always been there. It's just he related a little bit differently to Old Testament Israel than he does the church. Because now that the sacrifice has come, now we've got to live in light of that reality, that new covenant. So hope that makes sense. If it doesn't, it's a good commentary. You made a distinction on love towards children, spouses, etc as a love motivated by feeling. Since the scripture does not speak on love in terms of feelings, but only as a command to love God and neighbor, wouldn't it follow that whatever love towards children or spice must be godly love? 
Well, I think all the love, well, this is the thing. I, yes and no. And let me, let me explain what I mean. Jesus said in John 13, a new command I give to you, that you love one another. This is a new command. This is the only new command that Jesus gave in the New Testament. All the other commands, he just reinterpreted. You have heard it was said, I say it, but this was the only new command. So the new command wasn't to, it was to love other believers because the default is to love your children, is to love. I mean, that's why the default is to even love yourself. This is why the scripture says, love your neighbor as what? You love yourself because God already knows that's already a part of who you are. Loving yourself is just a part of who you are. Loving your children is going to be a part of who you are. That's, that's a part of being made in God's image. I right, think about this for a second. You ever watch these little, you ever seen these videos like, oh, the little black boy plays with the little white boy, and they have best friends, and at three, and there was this video I saw where these two kids were running towards each other, and it was so cute, and they were like, it was two, a white kid and a black kid, and they ran up and they hugged each other. They were three and four years old, didn't know any difference. You can read slave, even back in slavery, like there would be little black kids playing with little white kids until they get older and they realize, oh, I can't relate to him. Love is, hate is not functionally a part of being made in God's image. You learn to hate others, but the, what you're born with is loving people. You're born to love. This is why a baby just loves instinctively its mom. A mom usually loves the child. You know, like these things are just, they happen because we're made in God's image. The new command that God gives is to love believers in a way that you don't love other people. Now, that doesn't eliminate your love for your children and your love for your spouse and your love for your pets and things like that. Sure, but God said a new command I give to you, which is a unique love that was sacrificial based on Jesus' death. That's what he said in John 13, 34 and 35, and that's what we see in this passage. So the assumption is that you already love. So yeah, on one level, do you love your children that way? Sure, but you're going to love them that way because they're your children. God isn't as concerned about our love for our children. Yeah, there's some passages in there. Fathers, don't love your children, Ephesians 6, 4. There's some passages in the Bible, but he's more concerned with you loving your believers, brothers and sisters. That's a command that, that proves you're actually a believer. So I just think they're a little bit different. But I mean, it doesn't, emotional, emotion is not eliminated. We're not talking about the absence of emotion. We're talking about the dependence on emotion. There's a difference. God isn't saying, hey, man, be a stoic and love people. That's not what he's, it's, it's not, it's, it's just, it's not dependent on how I feel. I'm still commanded to love despite how I feel. That's a good question. What do you do if one believer says of another believer that another believer is unbelieving because they failed to do X, Y, Z for them? Could that be considered manipulation by the first person or a failure to live out these verses by the second person? I, I mean, I'd have to have, know more specifics. Uh, it could be binding someone, you know. So what did we talk about last week, right, in, in, in love, First Corinthians? It could be insisting on its own way. That we often measure love by people doing things that we want done, <laughs> particularly in relationships like marital or parental, parental. You just, you kind of measure it by like, do what I ask. And then if they don't, then you get offended and think like, no. So it's hard to know because that's a little general, but it could be, you know, this person is failing to love in that way. But here's the thing, though. Well, the question I would have is, so does that affect your love, though? Like, does that affect your love? Because I would be concerned that you're motivated by loving this person if they love you back. 
So does that affect your love, though? Even if a person doesn't love you back, you're still commanded to love those because you're motivated by God's love for you. You're motivated by how he feels, not how you feel, or how they feel about you. So again, I'd need a little bit more information because it could be, okay, yeah, Mount, won't you share that with your brother or sister? Or it could be, you might be insisting on your own way because it's really not that serious. That's a preference that you have. You're like, I, like you might like, there's people in here that hang out, right? Let's say you all go out, you all want to go to a restaurant. And, and somebody wants to go over here, but everybody else wants to go over here, right? And then, and so y'all decide not, the, the person gets offended because y'all don't want to go over here. That's insisting on your own way. That's, that's just that. You, you, I, would, I wouldn't receive no correction for that. Because it's like, you're the only one that wanted to go there. Everybody else was, so to me, that's insisting on your own way. We weren't being rude. It was just like, everybody else said, let's go here. You're the only, you know, so that, I think you just got to be careful when we're talking about, I need to correct people for being unloving. Because we, not that we shouldn't, I just think we need to be careful and make sure that one, I'm not, I'm not unmotivated, dependent on their love to love them back. And two, that it actually is not just a preference that I have. That's what I would say. This question is from one of our high schoolers. Um, What's up? I don't know if this is a bit off topic or not, but how would you approach someone who judges people based on how they look, whether it be their ha hairstyle or how they dress without getting to know them first? And um, go, they go as far as not allowing their children to dress a certain way or do certain things because of this. It seems as if they are caring more about how the person looks as opposed to their relationship with the Lord or how they really are. What are your thoughts on this? So I have a few of them. So let me say what my visceral thought was at first. Somebody's trying to get me to correct their mom. All right, so <laughs> from all that, I did all that. Wasn't born yesterday. But if I was, I was up all night. Um, read the first part of it again. You got, can you read the first part again? Because I'm trying to understand, is it the parent? So it's the child It seems who's... like a two-part question. The first, the first part is how do you approach someone who judges people based off how they look and dress? And then the second part is addressing the parents. Okay, so the first one, so I'm assuming the person's a believer that they're talking yeah, about? Yeah, this person, well, it doesn't specify. Okay. But just at least giving them a chance. So the challenge, so again, if you're a believer, then you're bound to the scriptures, right? So I think we, we can go to passages like Matthew 7, you know, um, and stuff like that. Oh, but, so we can, go to, we can go to passages like Matthew 7 if a person is being judgmental and things like that, right? And then we can talk about how is that loving your brother? Or if it's a brother, you're talking about, oh, how is that loving your neighbor? Like, we'll talk about loving your neighbor uh, next, next, next Sunday. So there's things you can go to biblically, and I think there's no real how. It's just you just do it graciously. Right. I think whenever whenever we're approaching someone that we need to correct, we have to always remember that not only have we probably sinned in the way that we're going to correct them, but we also want to be corrected a particular way as well. Right. So we have to remember that. Like, I think sometimes we forget that we need to be like every correction is an admonishment. You admonish the idol. Idol means a person is just not doing nothing. But all correction isn't about like being firm. And sometimes it's like, hey, bro. 
can I share something with you? You know, sometimes it's just, it's, a, it's, it's not that serious. So I think we're, there's no easy way to do that, but I assume you have relationship with this person. But I think you just say, hey, can I, can I bring something up to you that's kind of bothered me? And I could be wrong. Typically, I would try to bring that up in the form of a question. So I would say something like this. Hey, so how do you, like, where do you feel like the Bible says you should judge people like that? Like, where do you get that from? You got This is the thing. If you don't bring people to the scriptures, people will say what you're saying is your own opinion. Now, don't get me wrong. There are times you got to give your opinion because that's what the situation calls for. But if you don't bring people to the scriptures when you're bringing correction, it'll just be your opinion. So you got to say, hey, bro, so how do you feel like, so when, it, when, when, you read, when you hear a passage like this, I'd give him a passage like Matthew 7. So, you know, the, you know take the log out of your own eye, right? I'd, I'd bring him in that, hey, so how do, you feel, how do you take the log out of your eye when you judge how they carry themselves? Like, what does that look like for you? How do you do that? You know what I'm saying? It's just like, you got to be able to do that. Or you just go, you know, what fruit of the spirit would you say that that is? It depends on your relationship with the person and how you communicate, right? But I think if they're not a Christian, you'd just be like, hey, bro, like, hey, what would you say if I told you that this person was, like, talking about you behind your back and stuff? And, you, you'd be, you know, you appeal to people because no one wants to be treated that way. I don't know anyone that's like, yeah, I want people to talk behind my back. Eh? I mean, you might find somebody that's just wild like that, but then you probably shouldn't be hanging with them then. So <clears throat> the second question about clothes and stuff like that, you know, that's an issue. That's, a, that's an issue between you and the, and the parent. Like, I think parents, you have to have a conversation and ask the parent to kind of explain, assuming the parent is, is humble enough to like really do that. Because sometimes as parents, we have sort of a do as I say because of the position that I'm in. And that's not biblical either. So because, I mean, if, you're, if it's do what I <laughs> you ever sinned against your kids by telling them not to sin? So like being angry, like, stop yelling. And it's just like, well, aren't you? So. Again, we have to be careful when we're talking. But I think I would ask the parent for a question, like, hey, what, what issue do you have with these clothes or this outfit or whatever that is? So uh, there's no easy way to do it. A lot of it, you just got to swallow our own fear of man and then just ask a question and, and, and have that conversation. How do we reconcile the secular worldly definition of love with the biblical definition? Biblical love can look quite unloving, to the worldly definition since we're not working with the same definition. So how do we reconcile? I think Romans 12, 18, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Like they're, like they're, like a whisper is too loud if you don't want to hear what the person has to say. So I, I can't, I don't measure faithfulness by how people respond to what I say. Even you guys. I don't measure faithfulness before God by what you all do. Because you all could be like, yeah, I'm good with it, and then leave and don't care at all. Or have all these, you know, judgments and stuff of me because I said something in a, ter in a way you didn't like or this or that. Like, I, I honestly don't. It, I just, I am who I, it is what it is. First Corinthians 4, like, I'll let God judges and he'll give his commendation. We have to get to a point where it's like, I can't measure faithfulness by how people respond to what I say. I have to measure it by how did I say it. Let me be, let me be, or did I say it? Let me measure faithfulness based on these things, not just like how people respond, because you just can't. I mean, look at Jesus. There's a lot of people that did not believe in Jesus after he did all this stuff. Yeah. Was Jesus unfaithful? Like never. So 
I think we just have to learn. So the way we reconcile it is we need to be loving based on what we know the Bible says and the conviction we have. But we need to make sure that we're loving based on what the Bible says, though. Sometimes being rude and challenging people is not is not is not loving. So, again, I don't know what the what the specificity is, but I think we have to just be careful of how we do things. And when we're off to say, man, I, my bad, I was wrong on that. But there are times you have to ask for forgiveness of the way you corrected somebody, but then the correction is still true, though. Like, even if you correct somebody in a wrong way, unloving way, if it's true, it's true, you know? That doesn't change anything. You just might have to change the way you said it. So I just, you got to measure faithfulness by the, the fruits of the Spirit. How am I bringing this up? How am I doing this? What am I doing? And know that the world is going to oppose that. The world is going, you should, we should, every genuine Christian should expect the world to oppose the things that the Bible says you stand for. You should not be surprised if you have a biblical sexual ethic and people get offended at that. Like, why would we be surprised by that? Why would you should not be surprised that you think Jesus is the only way to salvation and people are mad at that? Why should why wouldn't they be? You're telling them that the way they think they're good is not. You should not be surprised when you tell someone that they're actually a sinner that needs a savior and they get offended. I'm a good person. Like, what do you mean? I don't, you know, okay, what's the, how do you measure good? Like, by what standard? Like, who, how do you measure that? Like, we shouldn't be surprised. Like, sometimes we just want everything to be smooth. Hey, do you know about Jesus? No, could you tell me more? And then, you know, it's just like, you know what I'm saying? I mean, don't, I do too, right? You want to be smooth. Like, hey, have you heard of the Lord? Nope, but I, I got an hour if you got time. I mean, who's... I, I mean, you know, I, I, man, I used to do this all the time. I just be like, oh, man, I just want people to just. I used to judge people. I, I used to do campus ministry, and I'd be like, man, they ain't going to believe the gospel. And I would judge them because of how they look. I mean, truth be told, I'm not. I judge them. I'd be like, man, they ain't going to believe the gospel. But you know what? People don't look at me and be like, he's a pastor. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> so it's just like, what can you do, you know? Faithfulness is measured by, you know what I'm saying? Look, they, only, they just realize I'm a pastor today. Faithfulness is. is, is it's just, not, it's just measured by, by the fruits of the Spirit. You're acting in conjunction with what God's Word says. So. Is that it? Man, y'all have some questions today. I love it. Good. All right, Wednesday, one another. Everyone be there. We got, we, there's a couple things we need to talk about. I need to explain to you, share with you guys on Wednesday night, so please be there, 730. We're going to have some fun. We're going to talk about some things. We're going to talk about love. But there's some other things I got to explain to you guys that you know what's going on about a couple of issues. All right, love you guys. And we'll see you Wednesday night for one another. No D groups this week. Do not read chapter three unless you want to. Save that for later, but, but we'll see you soon. All right?